Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. This episode, we're speaking with Priya Maman, an emergency room physician and a public health consultant. She is a fellow at the Lindy Institute of Urban Innovation at Drexel University. She's the chair of the section of public health and preventive medicine at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia and adjunct faculty of health and societies at the University of Pennsylvania. We talked with her about how her medical and public health degree complement each other and how she works with others to change health policy and most recently around the opioid crisis. Let's have a listen. Today we want to welcome Priya Maman, who is joining us for our typical conversations. Priya, would you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm Priya Maman. I'm an emergency physician and a public health specialist. I actually started my career in the international development world um, in the mid-90s as Cambodia was coming out of uh, Vietnamese occupation after Pol Pot time. And I really wanted to be a part of health systems development and sort of had a passion for working in the multidisciplinary approaches to international public health and development. Um, but I realized there um, that everything we were doing would take an impact in about 10 to 15 years. And I was seeing people who were sick and in need of more uh, immediate attention. And so I decided to go to medical school really to gain skills um, to be more effective in that space. And, you know, life happens. And I'm still back in the United States. I got married. I had children. I've developed my career in um, emergency medicine um, with a specific focus on the ED as a point of access to care for the underserved and marginalized populations. Um, in line with my public health um, and kind of access missions, the emergency department in the U.S. health system is often the only place that is completely unfettered with no barrier to receiving care other than being willing to wait. Um, and so it gave me access to the patients and populations I was most interested in, and as well as, you know, a skill set that uh, and in an environment that I thrive in. That's kind of my MO. So that over time has led me um, to be a clinician, but really to be able to see in real time things that are affecting the community um, because they basically walk through the doors and we can kind of, you know, we're definitely the canary in the coal mine, I think. Um, so over time, as my career developed, I started to join different tables because it made me realize that policymakers, decision makers were making these um, decisions at the 30,000 foot view and never understood how it actually trickled down to the front line. And so I felt it important to kind of use my position and voice from the emergency department, the experiences I had kind of translate the voice back of the my patients and, and the community back to those decision makers. And that, I think, really has two things, you know, I think elevated the experience of the front line, but also um, has shown a lot of people things that they had never really considered, I think, in the world of medicine, we're so focused on the individual and that 
the confidentiality of that and the sort of honor of that um, relationship that we forget that nobody else sees or understands what we see and understand every day. Um, so there's a space to reflect back and really engage back in the bigger picture and the broader systems to try and impart change. That's super interesting. And this comes up a lot. People say to us, you know, I see what's going on. Other people don't see what's going on. What do I do about it? Can you tell us a little bit about how you've used your voice or ways that you've found effective in feeding back what's going on? Yes, I will tell you that I'm still working on this um, because it's a learning process. You know, what happens, I think it's really been that very early experience with working um, across disciplines and across sectors to literally rebuild physically a health system in a war-torn country that made me realize how many players are have to be involved and are involved. And when you come back to the world of medicine, it just seems, you know, like it's it's us <laughs> because we're in these houses um, and there's different medical specialties that you use to address it. But if you're able to take a step out and realize all the pieces that need to be in place out to make something work outside of the hospital system or outside of the exam room, um, it's identifying who those stakeholders are and who those partners can be. Um, so I, that was my intro. And over time, where it came, sort of started to come to a head was with the opioid crisis. And I was hearing all of these things from policymakers and, you know, a lot of rhetoric, I would say, um, with good intention, though. You know, I mean, people genuinely all want to improve things. It's it's that if you're trying to improve things and you've never considered what someone who has opioid use disorder or someone who's who's in the throes of addiction, what their life is like, you can't understand that that little move you made thinking is going to make it better for everybody just made it worse. Um, so it was in the kind of throes of the epidemic of daily lives lost where I would just sort of be like, excuse me, um, I just need you to know <laughs> that this is, this is what's happening, right? Yeah. Um, and then it was initially more quiet of reaching out to people, emailing people, um, linking up with people who were champions in different spaces um, and who really wanted to have a partner and champion in the hospital systems because to the community and in, in a lot of ways, the hospital system is kind of like an iron curtain, like there's no real way in. Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, really just making friends and trying to learn from other people and then being seen as someone who was re reliable and honest that garnered attention. So it was these partnerships that were like, okay, so let's, let's fix this in our immediate space. And then it would get to bigger of like, let's try and address this on a neighborhood level and let's try and address this now on the city level. And then it became that, you know, different city, state, and even federal level policymakers were recognizing the, you know, it wasn't me, it was this group of people who were joining together to problem solve in our space, who had lessons that we could share. Are there any specific examples you can maybe give us of things that you've been able to do? I'm curious because 
every doctor listening to this podcast, myself included, <laughs> has this list in the back of their mind or sometimes in the front of their mind of the things they would change in an ideal world. And so I'm, I'm super interested where you start. So I'll give you a series of very small steps that turn into large steps, um, again, through the lens of the opioid crisis. In the very beginning, I mean, it almost seems archaic, and it was only just four or five years ago, the idea of having uh, naloxone or Narcan available to patients, that was systematically and almost unilaterally frowned upon because it was this idea that it was giving people permission to use drugs. And instead, as an emergency physician, what I can say is it's a very easy discussion if you're talking about alive or dead. That's basically the paradigm we work in, right? And so having that, taking that step of saying we will make naloxone available to our patients regardless, and that would include people who had just, um, we had just revived from an overdose, but also the people who were on long-term opioids for outpatient therapy or had other risk factors that may put them at risk. What we, what we were able to do is that one little small step in our space that then was reflected back eventually because it was adopted and it was seen. And, you know, it wasn't that my step took the next step, but it was these parallel forces that were happening where then it became a standing order at the state level that said, you know, any Pennsylvanian, I'm from Philadelphia, anybody in the state of Pennsylvania can walk into any pharmacy and get that. What we did, though, was that pharmacists were not necessarily carrying naloxone. So mm. what what we sort of made a very intentional step to do is just start keep writing prescriptions for naloxone, knowing that if they if they had to fill it against my prescription, they would have it available for a standing order that somebody could just walk in. Mm. And that became uh, an attitude change, right? It became what was seen as you don't give this is a medicine that we have for ambulances we have in the hospital but this is not a medicine you just make freely accessible because what are you doing as just reinforcing some you're giving someone permission to continue to use and instead we brought some humanity to it right the way we the way i educated my colleagues in my immediate space was just to say, this is, you know, stop seeing addiction and see a person. And that person comes to the emergency department, we will bring them back no matter what. We will do our best. Why would we make that same person wait for the system, the ambulance and all of the rest to happen? We know that, you know, if they're in a family and they're at home, this, the family would want to do that immediately regardless. And our goal is to get someone into treatment and to get someone well, not to sort of pass a judgment that cuts all of that off. That sort of stepwise led into other things. So having increased availability of naloxone and having that pivot point come from the emergency department also led the way to prescribing or using buprenorphine out of the emergency department into other spaces. And one of the, you know, one of, the examples of that also. So emergency physicians are sort of modus is if I can't fix it, <laughs> I don't really want to know about it in the sense of I, I can't, I'm not checking your cholesterol level because there's nothing I can do about your cholesterol level. I'm not checking any blood work <laughs> that doesn't immediately come back and I make a decision on, right? Yep. Um, what we learned was that 
we rely on the system to kind of pick up where we leave off. And in the world of addiction and the world of mental health in general, there is a gap between us, the mental health and the physical health worlds are siloed just by the nature of how our system is built. Mm-hmm. And we too, we in the emergency department, again, recognize that we were at this pivot point. We were at this interface that few people find themselves at. But what we were also finding was we could bring somebody back from an overdose if they and they would have a moment of yes I don't want to do that again yes I would like to get better I don't this is you know some I, an illness I want to address and have real really nowhere to go or the the sort of gauntlet to get into treatment was insurmountable so it became another thing that eventually emergency physicians recognized that this is a our opportune time and space to reach people um, and to capitalize on that moment. And, you know, sort of individually in different houses, this was happening. And over time, it's coalesced to being one of the points of care um, and being recognized as one of those points of care, as opposed to sort of we're here to keep you alive and somebody else is there to address the long term keeping you alive. No, that's really, really interesting. One of the things about mental health care is that with underfunding, we've kind of systematically dismantled the mental health infrastructure because we haven't kept it up with funding. And I can imagine that you may have run into some of those roadblocks. Well, let me tell you, I haven't gotten through those. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because one leads into another. Mm -hmm. Addiction falls under the mental behavioral space, even though the way we approach it is markedly different from the 70s when so much of these policies and regulations were developed, right? Right. Um, But mental health in particular over the course of the pandemic has reached a new level. And the reality is that just as I say, the emergency department is often the only unfettered point of access. It has become the only place people can uh, reliably turn to. But the emergency department is where the expectations of what we can and cannot do far outstrip what we actually can and cannot do. Yeah. So parents, families, at every moment, it is still a call for help, a cry for help. And ultimately, what we recognize is it is genuine worry and fear. And so we in the medical world may not recognize this as a true, true emergency. It is still something that is really bothering somebody and they don't know where else to go. And so they come to us. Where that falls in the mental health space is what we've seen over the last two years as people who have never sought care for mental health issues, who have never identified that they're having a mental health problem, right, or a behavioral health problem, are coming to us out of desperation. And there is almost nothing we can do because the houses are so split. Where in the physical health space, if I'm worried about somebody, somebody has an infection where in one person I would say, take these antibiotics, you know, come back if it gets worse, but follow up with your regular doctor. If someone is unsheltered, homeless, I may say, we're going to keep you for 24 hours and we're going to make sure you get these antibiotics in the first few days and keep you clean and safe, you know, housed and safe. And 
at least know that these first hours that we will be able to kind of cover you and hit it hard. I can't do that in the mental and behavioral health space because the process to get in is far outside of, at least in Pennsylvania, far outside of where I can say, you're going to come into this bed, period. Next idea is that over the entire state slash region slash East Coast, I can speak to, there are not enough beds. There, These are the beds that have either hospitals have shut down or systems have not been able to support them. And there is right now an unprecedented need without the cocomitin resource availability. And so it's causing it's a crisis unto itself where we in the emergency department have nowhere to send people. Um, we are mandated by law to kind of overtaken their civil liberties, basically, if they've acted in a way to harm themselves. Um, and what we're doing is not anything we would do to someone who was suffering from a physical health crisis. You know, we, we have to keep them in a place. There's lights on all the time. There's noises all the time. And we're just keeping them to try and figure out where to be able to send them. And there's often nowhere immediately to send them. So um, when I say it's a daily struggle for me, I will I say it's a daily struggle for me to figure out all the barriers in the mental health space. So this is what Wendy and I speak to people about all the time, and you've given a perfect example of, which is that you've gone through an inordinate amount of training and experience to become an expert at how to take care of people and how to put your patients first, no matter what population they're from, right? Clearly a marginalized population in many situations. And it seems that it's just increasingly difficult to be able to take care of that person the way that you'd have your own family member taken care of or yourself taken care of if, if you ended up in that situation. Is that fair to say? It's absolutely fair to say. Absolutely fair to say. Um, and I feel complicit. Yep. And that's where the hurt comes from sometimes. Yes. I mean, it's a combination of being complicit and helpless. Powerless. Yes. Yeah. All the constraints are outside of your control. Yes. Their business decisions, their public policy decisions, their legislative decisions. Absolutely. And as we've already said, you've got the background and experience to actually make a lot of changes. And you've been in environments overseas where change is incredibly difficult. And it must be unbelievably frustrating to be in a place where we have, in so many ways, unbelievable resources and incredibly intelligent people and still be unable to achieve some of those goals. I will tell you, um, I mean, this has been an existential crisis for me over the pandemic in particular. Because I have worked the bulk of my career um, around marginalized populations, or those who have decreased access, or those who don't trust or feel safe within the healthcare system. I had this idea that, um, you know, those who, for people who use drugs, for people with HIV is another population I've worked a lot with, um, and hepatitis C, there is kind of a trifecta around drug use, but also homeless populations, um, and trafficked populations. Uh, in my head, I thought it's easy for people to feel very disconnected from the this population. And so 
that empathy and compassion is hard, perhaps, for them to muster. What I net, you know, the entire first year of the pandemic, all I kept thinking is, wait, <laughs> what is happening that now the risk of death is for everyone. The risk of severe illness is for everyone. Your neighbors, you know, the neighbors growing, you grew up with or down the street, people in your gym, anybody, right? Why are we not approaching this with that idea of we will help each other mm -hmm. and we will work to keep each other safe and we will mourn the people we have lost? And what it felt like was we in the healthcare space and and even then only some of us because right the outpatient world kind of shut down for a little bit of time, the surgical world shut down for a little bit of time. So it often felt very um, much in the hospitals at the time as it was the emergency department, the inpatient teams, but the ICU teams, it was the ED and the ICU right. teams that we were just, you know, bombarded. <laughs> And there was all these motions of like seven o'clock, everyone cheer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, but all I could think is what, what's happening that we're not all affected because we, yes, we who try and help people and we who try and keep people alive and we who try and keep people safe are affected by this, but we're also used to it. We've never seen any, at least in my career, I've never seen anything like what these last two years have been in the emergency department, but I couldn't understand. I can't, I still haven't made, I haven't reconciled it that I thought it's just that people don't feel it affects them. And here everybody was affected and there was still not this sort of, and I guess maybe in, in different parts of the country it was different, but it didn't seem like this groundswell of, okay, we're going to buckle down and we are going to do this and we are going to keep each other safe and we're going to just get through it together. Right. Mm -hmm. These all of these things from history and, you know, maybe it's how I learned it, but it always seemed like the American spirit was like, this is it. We take care of each other when in times of crisis, we like dig in and that's what we do. Yeah. And what it felt like was um, we weren't where other countries were and whether that was top down driven in terms of policy and regulation and how they were supported or not, I can't necessarily speak to, but it hurt. It hurt me because it changed a belief system, I think. Yeah. And it also may have been how it was communicated in those other countries. Correct. But, you know, I, I want to go back because I think even though you had this existential crisis in the pandemic, you were faced with another crisis in the opioid epidemic, and you approached it in a very systematic way, and you made headway. And so one of the things that I'd like to go back to and ask again is, how did you identify the people who could help you? Because you didn't do it alone. You found a group of people who wanted to move that needle with you. And that's how you got to success. And I think that's a lesson for all of us. It is. A, it, it's an important lesson. I agree. Um, I will tell you the very first steps of that was acknowledging and accepting 
that I did not know enough that my where my training and experience was stopped at a certain point um, and to be better and more effective um, to understand how best to approach it as a clinician really um, was to understand more and where that understanding came from was outside of what was traditionally always the places I looked. I would always look to people with more experience. I would always look to people with more education. And this time I looked to community organizations and, um, you know, on the ground champions who in the, in the worlds of HIV from kind of the nineties into those who have, um, you know, who are, I, really reached out to the harm reduction community to try and understand because there's two parts to that. There's the practical of what do I need to know? How can I help the best? But there's also uh, the ideological almost of understanding even my own biases of how I learned and how I studied what regulation and policy meant. Um, And again, to sort of learn to see the humanity of people as opposed to a disease entity. Um, And I just recognized we weren't doing a good enough job in the emergency department of making people feel safe and making people feel like we were there to help them. So I went again, I went into realms that I didn't know. And I just tried to talk to people and through talking to them and learning from them and honoring them, I think. I just, and being able to go back and sort of share those lessons that I I received from the harm reduction community, but also it's a tremendous amount of knowledge and wisdom that comes from the community that we often just miss (laughs) because we don't stop to take the time to ask them, you know? Um, And it And if you also, the other part of community organizations and community champions is they know how to get things done. They know how to navigate these different worlds. And so it was very stepwise where I went out to learn and I went out to understand and I basically met more and more people and we were all working again for the same mission from very different angles. And that's what I think was the success of it was that we could come with our different skill sets and our different experiences. Um, but it was also the emergency department. Um, the unique thing about EDs is that we don't own our patients, you know, it's like whoever it's whoever comes Mm -hmm. in. So it, in a city like Philadelphia, that is the nickname of Philly is meds and eds, which is we have so many (laughs) academic medical institutions. Um, there's a ton of competition or, you know, like lives covered, all of those things for surgeries, for this and that. But it's not that we are competitive in the emergency department space. What we are is we see different parts of our same city uh, because Philadelphia is a city of neighborhoods that are markedly different. They have different flavor. But what we did is we reached out to each other as we were realizing, like, are you got you know, this thing of like, are you seeing this? And that started it with the prescription 
and how many people were coming to the, the emergency department for refills, for chronic pain, for those kinds of things. And then it turned in, you know, it sort of dovetailed into overdose. Um, but we reached out to each other to learn from each other to get better together. And it was that. It was really very driven in humility and the ability to try and learn from each other, the desire to try and learn from each other. I would say that was reflected again during COVID mm. because we did, there was no studies, right? We couldn't look to the evidence. So we were looking to each other, whether it was over Twitter or just like, what happened? You know, I had this patient and all of these things were happening in the very beginning and where we were maybe, you know, a week or two delayed in terms of the full wave, we could learn from other countries and from other people. Um, I think that spirit of collaboration and cooperation and that spirit of learning and teaching each other um, has been a huge point of change. And I think it starts with asking the questions and being willing to go outside of your realm for the answers. These are two great examples also of solutions that started at the grassroots and where without a grassroots understanding or without a frontline opinion, it would be very hard to legislate yourself out of COVID or legislate yourself out of an opiate crisis. It's not that we haven't all tried in various ways, but the ideas about how you do some of these things do have to start with the people who are intimately involved with what the problems are and also intimately involved in connecting the dots, as you said, with the, the COVID situation. But also wiping away all of the business of healthcare that inevitably gets overlaid onto all of these systems. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the benefits of being in the emergency room, like you said, is you don't own the patients and you rely heavily on other organizations, other departments. You have to cut across the silos. You have no choice. Absolutely. It's how we think even. Right. I'm not sure I can effectively judge, but it does seem to me that in general, all of us have kind of react, retracted into our silos um, and our ability to communicate with each other and have discussion, but also push each other's belief systems or um, ideas and thoughts. Um, we're losing that. <laughs> We're losing that, I don't know what it is, if it's humility or just the ability to communicate. Um, but no problem will change by only one idea. No problem will change with only one group of people pushing for it. It has to be that everybody believes that it's something that needs to be addressed. Um, and where that comes from is the ability to explain it to each other yeah. in a way that's meaningful. Yeah. Storytelling is so important. Absolutely. I think, honestly, the very beginning, if I think back, I mean, it, it's just a few years, but it seems like a lifetime ago. But it really was just me telling stories about my patients that was how I was getting attention. Um and it was just telling the stories to the people who needed to hear it because it wasn't just my reality as a physician in that space. 
it was, you know, to go back to that sense of frustration and helplessness at being able to take those next steps. I could talk about that and I could say why. Right. <laughs> and I would convey that. Um, and, you know, again, here's what I will say. No matter how much I disagree with some ideas and no matter how much people may disagree with mine, what I've learned is that really for all of us who are working in a similar space, our goal is the same. Our mission is the same and it's always to make things better. So being able to bridge that in through very practical ways, you know, and I think that's part of, that's been part of my success of incremental steps, even though I'm generally, you know, ER docs and I'm one, I am completely, totally impatient. <laughs> I have, I, I'm like a bull in a China shop, but stepwise progression is still success in action. It's just leading to the next, you know, and it's, it's uh, how people can digest it. Um, and that's both from an educational and awareness standpoint, as well as um, a problem-solving standpoint. Yeah. Well, Priya Maman, I'm so glad that we had this conversation with you. Thanks for joining us here, and I'm sure that we'll talk again in the future. Thank you so much. And I, I so honor your work, and I thank you for being a voice for the rest of us to hear and not feel alone. Thanks. Thank you, Priya. So, Wendy, um, you know, there are a lot of things that Priya touched on that we've spoken about before, and she's sort of the classic person that we speak to who has struggled with some of the things that we've been harping about for quite some time now. Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I was struck with when we talked with her was that she said almost verbatim what Carlina Rivera had said on her episode, mm -hmm. which was that sense of you build your house, then you go to your building, then your neighborhood, then your city to build kind of a grassroots movement and make the change that you want to see. And part of that is also the idea of shrinking the change, right? Starting <laughs> with small steps and building on them. Because, you know, we speak to a lot of people between you and me who say, but I really want to revamp the health system. And that sounds great, but you've got to start somewhere. And the idea of starting with something that was manageable is clearly what she was doing when it came to working in her own emergency room and dealing with the opiate issues and things like that. Yeah, and she built it from her own emergency room out to a statewide policy. So even though that wasn't where she started, it's amazing what can happen when you make the small changes, you let other people know that you've made the change. So you do that celebrating and then you grow the change. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. All the while asking for help as you go. Having the humility to recognize that there are a lot of things that we don't know, especially what's going on in other people's part of the system or in other people's lives. And I think you and I have recognized that on multiple occasions when we've spoken to administrators about what's going on in their hospitals. And I think, you know, we often look at this one-sidedly and say, well, you know, there's administrators out there that don't know what we're doing as doctors, but the vast majority of us have no idea what's being done in the hospital at an administrative level either. And so knowing what one another are doing is a critical part of that in, in almost all of these aspects of change. Yeah, for sure. And she reminded me so much of Mona Masood when she said, I, I, I sort of didn't know. So I reached to the people that I thought might know. Mm-hmm the community organizers. And in doing that, she broke down some of the silos. She realized who 
was the expert in building those kinds of movements. And she let them take the lead on it. Like she was happy to let them tell her what she didn't know. And she did it with curiosity. Yeah. You know, it was done from that wonderful place of, I'm not going to come here and tell you what to do, nor am I just going to ask you what the problem is, but I'm really curious. I really want to know what's underlying this and what we can do together. Yeah. And it was so powerful how she was talking about the emergency rooms and how she sort of says, it doesn't matter to me who's competing with whom, because in the emergency room, we just take whoever comes. So there isn't that layer of the business of medicine over top of what she's doing. And it allowed the emergency rooms across the city to break down those barriers and cross the silos. Yeah, just wonderful to hear of someone doing this. And I hope we hear both more from her, but more from some of the other people out there about what they're doing in in a similar way, because I think these are the first steps towards the things that we can be proud of changing. Yeah, for sure. And when she was talking about reaching across all of those different boundaries, it just reminded me of Don Berwick's episode when he talked about when a problem is insoluble, make it bigger, (laughs) bring more people into the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think about that so often. That the more people we invite to help us make the change, the better off we'll be. Which is a perfect segue into our exit here, which is if you, if you want to solve these problems, make them bigger. Tell more people about them. Tell <laughs> right. more people about the podcast. Get more people involved. For sure. <laughs> so thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. And to learn more about the nonprofit, Moral Injury of Healthcare, if you have guests that you want us to talk to, if you want to know about any of the other work that we do, you can go to the website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast, you can also make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation. And we want it to be a conversation. Please tell us what's going on in your life. Come and join us. Uh, let us know what's happening so that we can uh, we can help address some of those things that you're dealing with. You can help us spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well. <laughs>